Please take your Bibles and open them to Romans chapter 10, if you have not already. We'll continue on in our study of the book of Romans and of this chapter, wrapping it up today, Lord willing. And I'll begin by saying what I've said several times before in the course of this study, and that is that the Jews need salvation just like everybody else. That the Jews, the people of God that were chosen by him for no reason other than his sovereign grace, need salvation as much as anybody else. They had zeal without knowledge. They had works without righteousness. They had law without forgiveness. They had essentially religion without salvation. As we saw earlier, Paul begins the section by saying this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they be saved. That's all that Paul wanted was for his people to be saved. He bears witness of them. They they have this zeal. They have everything established that would point them to Christ, and yet they don't submit to his righteousness. They even understood that The Messiah would be the end of the law, but they didn't see Christ as the Messiah. If anybody knew what the law was, it was Moses, and if anybody had tried to be saved by the law, it was Paul. And both the men team up in this passage to take us through a confrontation of all of the futile efforts that people make at man-made religion as a way of earning merit before God. As we said last week, the first section could be called Faith Explained, and let me just give you a brief review before we go into the portion of Scripture we'll look at this morning. Just follow along, and I'll explain it briefly as we go. We said this was Faith Explained, faith being the theme of the chapter. He begins in verse 5 by saying that Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law and that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. That's not making an offer of salvation through the law. That, in fact, is saying that if you try to save yourself by being religious, you're going to fail. There is absolutely no way that you can live perfectly, and you know that. And yet that's the only way for salvation to come through that law. Verse 6, but the righteousness that we should be pursuing is a righteousness based on faith or justification. It's based on trust. If you want to think about what faith is in its most essential form, it's trust. You trust God. You trust his word. You trust the gospel. It leads to repentance. It leads to obedience. It starts here with a, with a trusting in the second Adam who is Christ who came and succeeded everywhere the first Adam failed. He completed the law, finished the law, submitted to the law, obeyed the law, allowed all of the merit that could ever be obtained in the law to be obtained through himself, although that alone would never save, and imputes that to us along with his own divine righteousness. You have to trust in the work of Christ. You you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not just as a way to be introduced to Christ, but as a way to see what he did and as an opportunity to put your faith in that, to trust him. Well, Moses, the lawgiver, says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. 
Paul is uh, loosely quoting Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14. And because Paul is an apostle, because Paul is a prophet, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he has the ability to rewrite Scripture. Not to make it say something it didn't say before, but to express it more fully. And so he explains what Moses meant when he said you can't go up to bring it down and you can't go down to bring it up. Because in Moses' context, he said that you would do that in order to have the power to do the works of the law. And Paul says there's no way you can go high enough to get help, no way you can go low enough to get help. The only help you're ever going to have is the help that comes from Christ. And you don't have to go up because he's been sent down. And you don't have to go down because he's been risen up. And that's where you place your faith and hope and trust. So faith here explained is a faith in Christ. He has done it all for you. You simply believe. We express what we know in our hearts to be true and we receive it. But, verse 8, what does it say? What does it say? It says that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me ask you this morning, is there a sweeter verse than that? Is there a sweeter assurance a sweeter or simpler truth. Aren't you thankful that we have not been deceived by a religious system that tells you that you have to live up to the expectations of a capricious deity by doing all sorts of painful and difficult tasks to prove your loyalty? Aren't you grateful that we no longer live under the cloud of deception that had come in after the dark ages through the Roman Catholic Church that made people believe that they could somehow earn merit that would be beneficial to them when they stood before God in the judgment, having no hope that they would really enter glory, but at best to enter purgatory, to spend thousands or even millions of years being punished to remove whatever residual sin they couldn't displace by going to Mass and having grace poured into them? Aren't you grateful that you don't live in some sort of tribe or culture where the true details of the gospel have not been presented to you such that you could put your trust in Christ and believe? These words are hitting your ears as those who have had your eyes opened to the truth. You've tasted of it. So don't be like the people in the book of Hebrews who tasted of it and then walked away without really taking it in and digesting it. The sweetness of this is really beyond comprehension. It's not saying, by the way, to look inside yourself for the answer or saying that you are the answer. We live in a culture today that would tell you that the answer is within yourself. Believe in yourself. You can be anything you want to be. I, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that's not true. You cannot be whatever you want to be. The answer is not inside of you. In fact, God in his mercy has relieved us of the effort of trying to find the answer within ourselves and instead placed the answer outside of ourselves, outside of ourselves so that it can remain objective and true and untainted and uncorrupted 
and believed upon to transform the inner you that is nothing but a reservoir of corruption anyway. The only thing we find within ourselves is more ignorance, more pride, and more sin. And so here, your mouth offers nothing but a confession or a testimony of the truth you believe. You go on the record as believing something to be true, and your heart is the place where the belief resides. Your heart, the heart of stone, is replaced with a heart of flesh at regeneration. When God the Holy Spirit makes you a new creature, until then, your heart is made of stone. And in the Greek understanding of this, I think I've mentioned it before, the Greek word cardia, heart, where we get cardiology from, the, the word heart is really our understanding of the word mind. It's where you, where you did your thinking. It's where you did your reasoning. The, the, the central location of all of your reasoning before conversion is nothing but stone. Every truth of the gospel just ricochets off of it. But when the Holy Spirit, by sovereign grace, changes you and gives you that heart of flesh, you receive that truth and you understand it. And, and from your heart, from your mind, you are able to proclaim honestly that you confess this to be true. That's why it's so difficult at times for us to share our faith with people that we love, because we're speaking a language they don't understand, a spiritual language, a language that comes from somebody who's been converted and changed, speaking to somebody who has yet to be, and yet I think it is good for us to hold out hope, because until the very end, there is always the opportunity for those who have yet to believe to put their faith in Christ. So don't be discouraged. We're coming up on the holidays. And that means family members gather together for the obligatory chore of spending time together in the name of holiday festivities. And I trust your family gatherings are a joyous occasion, but if they're not, and if they are from time to time tainted by awkward conversations, especially around the gospel, may I be an encouragement to you this morning that it is just those awkward conversations around the gospel that the Holy Spirit may use to turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And you don't know. It's a great thing to pray about leading up to that time. Well, that's faith explained. Then we talked about faith applied. What does it look like when it's actually in the life of the believer? Again, this is still review. There are four points of application that Paul gives. If you are taking notes, you can write these down. He's going to give four points in four verses that all start with the word for. He's going to talk about your confession your confidence, your calling, and your conversion. Your confession, your confidence, your calling, and your conversion. Look at your confession, verse 10. He says, for with the heart one believes and is justified. The heart, the mind, the center of your reasoning. It's with that part of you that you understand and believe. That's why it's different than it would be in a Western context today. With the heart, we think a heart is emotion. You feel it. He's not saying here you feel it. What he's saying is that you know. Facts trump feelings. You know this to be true. In your mind, you believe, and as a result, you are justified. You are made righteous. In our seminar this morning, we talked about one of the massive discoveries that Luther made during the Reformation, and that is 
that the righteousness of God is not a weapon that is used against sinful humanity, but the righteousness of God is a gift that is given to sinful humanity at conversion. For years, Luther struggled with this. That's why he would go to confession upwards of six hours at a time, confessing every sin he could think of. He was utterly and completely racked with guilt over all of his sins. And if you know the life of Martin Luther, if you've read his biographies, if you've heard the things he said about himself, these weren't even real big sins. These weren't the big sins that maybe you and I might feel guilty about and need to confess. These were little sins by comparison. These were the oversights, if you will. These were the minor offenses, and they crippled him with guilt, and he would go and confess over and over again until the people who were hearing the confession were wearied by it. You didn't want to see Martin Luther plop down in the seat on the other side of the screen and start confession because you realized, man, I should have packed a snack because this is going to take a long time. And when Luther had gotten to the end of all the sins he could think of, he would then begin to confess the fact that there were other things he didn't do that week that he normally did, and as a result, he felt pretty proud about it, so he might as well confess that too. It was endless. Why? Because Luther had a a heightened sense of personal holiness? Maybe. But by his own confession, the problem wasn't so much that he had a heightened sense of personal holiness. It was that he had an unbiblical perception of the righteousness of God. Von Staupitz, who would hear his confessions at one point, said, Luther, the problem is not that you fear the righteousness of God, the truth is that you hate the righteousness of God. You hate it because it hangs over you like the sword of Damocles. It hangs over you like a boulder about to crush you. It hangs over you like an oppressive, unloving parent who is constantly beating upon his child, telling him they're never good enough. And the moment that Luther realized that the righteousness of God was not a righteousness that would fall down upon him and crush him, but rather a righteousness that was offered to him as a gift that he might be clothed in it. It changed everything. He realized that what he understood in his mind to be true is what justified him and made him righteous, made him righteous not through the infused graces of the Catholic system and mass, not earning bits and bits of righteousness along the way by doing penance, but a once and for all dump of righteousness onto you, immersing you in it, giving you the righteousness of Christ, the only righteousness upon which you'll ever be judged. And so it's that heart that believes it, that confesses with their mouth, and as a result, shows that you're saved. It's logic and experience. The gospel's logical. Preaching is logical. Preaching should be something that you can understand because the preacher explains the text. It follows certain rules of interpretation. It is what Martin Lloyd-Jones described preaching as, logic on fire. 
The same is true of the gospel. The gospel is not something that can be fallen into by accident. People don't get saved unknowingly. There is a very direct correspondence between what you know and what you confess. And so he says you hear it and you believe it and you speak it and you confess it and your mind and your mouth are working together for verse 11. Here's your second one, the confidence. The scripture says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Takes Isaiah 28, 16 and applies it here. Quoted also in chapter 9, verse 33. You're never going to be let down. The height of my ignorance on certain subjects was manifest in vivid detail last week when I spontaneously sought to illustrate this by discussing how some people follow a sports team that is perennial, perennially bad. That, that, that no matter what, they just fail every year to, to do anything impressive or advance beyond the regular season. And then one brother afterwards asked me if I had any team in mind. And I said, no, to be perfectly honest, I, I don't follow sports at all. And he said, that's ironic because you live in San Diego and the Padres are here. Now, now I, I may have just offended some of you who are that very type of person, loyal to the extreme. You gather together with fellow Padres fans and you watch the games convincing one another with, with a futile sense of hope that, oh, it'll be different this year. And then there's that one friend you have who bases decisions on logic and says, no, it won't be different this year. It'll be the same this year as it has been every year. Here, the author is saying that you're never going to be put to shame when you put your faith in Christ. He's never going to let you down. It's your confidence. Verse 12, you're calling, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And not your calling here in the sense of being called to him, but your calling out to him is what I have in mind. He calls you and you call on him in return. And the righteousness of Christ is then imputed to those who believe with no consideration for anything except faith, a faith that is given to you as a gift. I hope, I hope we understand that and remember it. Can I just reiterate it? The, the, the gift that God gives you is the faith that you exercise in the gift he gives you in Christ. That the very gift of salvation must be believed. And the belief itself isn't something that you can come up with on your own. That faith that you exercise, even that faith is given to you, according to Ephesians 1 and 2. So, the last one is the conversion. It says in verse 13, For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a quote lifted up from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Again, he's using the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to back up his statement, used here to say that God is a saving God. Always in the context of judgment against his people, there is woven into it this golden thread of redemption. His judgment is never absolute. His curses are never pure. His judgment is never without the hope of redemption for a remnant. Whenever he brings judgment upon his people, his covenant love for them prevents him from exterminating them down to the last person. Now, there have been times in the history of Israel where they have been exterminated, at least the line of David, down to the last person. But in his kind providence, he always leaves the remnant. And here, Paul is applying that to all of God's children, Jew or Gentile. And it happens at our conversion. 
Nothing is earned. It just requires that call of salvation. Now, that's faith explained, faith applied. This morning, let's look at our text. And I'm going to call it this, faith denied. Faith denied. I mentioned Luther earlier, and I should say that several years after he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Chapel, he discovered that true doctrine of justification by faith alone. That pure gold of the Protestant Reformation was now visible after all of the dross of Roman Catholicism had been burned away. It was a salvation that was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is what he preached. That was the pure gospel. That was the good news. It's the good news today. It hasn't changed. It's the same pure gospel that we preach. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Not about works. There's nothing that we can do. But it should be noted that this doctrine wasn't what got Luther excommunicated. It wasn't the primary reason that the martyrs were burned. Justification by faith alone came later as a development in the Reformation. The beginnings of it were there, but it took a while for them to truly understand it. It was a growing awareness. But when it finally dawned on Luther, uh, he said this, and it's such a, a precious quote. I'm sure you've probably heard it before, but I give it to you for your benefit. Listen again to what he says. Upon understanding the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone for the first time, he says this, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live, There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness which which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again, and I had entered paradise itself through open gates. It wasn't until he understood that when it says that the righteous person will live by their faith, that it is a faith not in their own righteousness that they can achieve through effort, but in the righteousness of Christ that was given to them, and that opened up the doors of paradise to him. And let me just invite you today to go through those open doors of paradise if you have not yet, if you are still crippled and burdened by guilt and shame, then you don't rightly understand the gospel. If your life is a constant episode of zeal and exuberance followed by these vast chasms of depression and doubt and back and forth and back and forth, then I would invite you to come up onto that higher plane where you're able to see the entire thing clearly and it is this, that all the things that bring you such sadness and shame are real, that they are despicable in the eyes of God, but they have all 
in full measure already been laid on Christ and they already died with him. When you picture Christ on the cross saying it is finished, may I invite you to consider that what he is saying is finished is the act of redemption that killed your sin. Put it to death. He dragged it down, as it were, into the very depths of hell. It's paid for. It's finished. It's gone. Oh, it clings to you like a filthy garment, the Bible says, but in time that will be shed and you will be seen wrapped only in his righteousness. Don't let the present lingering sin be something that the devil convinces you will separate you from the love of God. And if you've never believed that for the first time, believe it now. It took Luther years to understand that, and he was a monk. He was one of the few people that had a copy of God's Word and actually read it. It takes a while sometimes to to fully understand that. I believe you can be in a church for years, be in a Christian family, and still not understand that gospel. God has to break through your natural self-righteousness and even your guilt and reveal it to you. So the result of this change in Luther was that there was a new emphasis on preaching. Trained, biblically literate men were sent out and put into churches so they could teach and the true gospel was proclaimed and the people heard it in their own language. They understood it, they believed it, they repented and they obeyed. It's the exact opposite of what is going on among the nation of the Jews that Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 10. As a matter of fact, faith denied can be described this way, and this will be our outline for this morning, for this section. They didn't obey, they didn't listen, and they didn't submit. What is the opposite of faith? It's just this. You don't obey, you don't listen, and you don't submit. We'll see the first one, they don't obey in verses 14 to 17. The second one, that they didn't listen in verse 18. And the third, that they didn't submit in verses 19 to 21. Well, let's pick up Paul's letter here in verse 14. They didn't obey. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they, how are they to believe on him whom they have not yet heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Just pause there for a moment. This is kind of the introduction. Now, I know you've all heard that verse before. It's the verse that everybody uses during the missions conference. It's the verse that reminds us that the gospel is carried on the feet of those who bring it to some who have never heard. You understand the imagery, the metaphor here. The feet themselves are not beautiful, but the messenger, it's, it's beautiful to see the messenger coming as he brings the truth of the gospel. And this is quoted from Isaiah 52 and verse 7, and it's very interesting that the context of Isaiah 52 is the coming Assyrian captivity when that foreign nation of infidels will crush the nation of Israel and bring them into captivity there is a promise that there will come on the feet of messengers the good news that God's salvation will return for his people. In the midst of this Assyrian captivity that had yet to occur when Isaiah prophesied it, 
there would be those who would preach the, the hope of the coming redemption of the Messiah. And these preachers are fulfilled in John the Baptist and then Jesus Christ himself and then the evangelist. It is, in fact, fulfilled in missionaries who go forth and bring the gospel. But it was also tainted by the Jews. And one of the most powerful sections in the Bible that explains this is Matthew 23. So you can listen or you can turn over here. Matthew 23 and Jesus talking to the religious leaders gives them this blistering indictment. I mean, when it comes to hypocrisy, Jesus has no tolerance for it. He begins in chapter 3 of Matthew, chapter 23 of Matthew, and he begins by saying, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you, meaning do the, the law as it's explained in, in, given in Moses, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. And then down in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. What a shocking statements. Imagine Jesus indicts the missionaries of the Jewish nation and says, you are so committed to missions. But when you travel over land and sea and make a convert, you make them twice a child of hell. They were already damned. And now you have sealed them in their damnation with your damning religion. Simply speaking and converting people to a religion doesn't save. And so Paul says the real message had gone forth and had been ignored. And the people of Israel are here languishing under the inevitable indictment of God against their hypocrisy and their wickedness. And the argument might be, well, if you would just give them the pure gospel, everything would be fine. If you would just preach the gospel to the Jews, then they would repent and believe. And so Paul borrows from Isaiah, and he says, this is the best example of Old Testament scripture about evangelism and missions. And he says, was the group evangelized or not? And the answer is they were. Look at verse 16. That message has already gone forth, but, and if you're a Bible underliner, I would recommend you underline the word but. It's the strongest adversative in the Greek language. The strongest way to say something is the opposite. And it appears in verse 16 and in verse 18 and in verse 19. It is the main part of each section of our outline this morning but they have not all obeyed. Verse 19, but I ask. Verse 19, but I ask. They have not obeyed, verse 16, a word that literally means to hear under the gospel, to come under the hearing of the gospel, to submit to it, 
to listen. They refuse to. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Again, quoting from Isaiah 53, the beginning of that beautiful section where the description of Christ is given, the suffering servant. Remember the the prophecy that Messiah would come. He quotes just from verse 1 to remind us of the context that in the midst of all of this preaching of the truth of the gospel, even to the Jews, no one listened. Beloved, I am so encouraged by the fact that you're listening. There's no greater honor that you can give to the Lord, no greater respect you can give to the Word, and no greater encouragement that you can give to a pastor than your punctual physical presence. Seeing you face to face means more to me than I can possibly explain to you. And seeing you paying attention and listening and hopefully taking in and obeying is the greatest treasure that any pastor can be given and the greatest reward that he could ask for. Because there's nothing in us that is worth listening to. There's only what is in God's Word that is worth listening to. And when you come and you sit and you listen and you make it a priority, it says to me that His grace is at work in your heart. May I remind you that the Jews did not give that same privilege to God. In fact, Isaiah, the prophet in mind here, is the one who was sent out to give a prophecy to a people for decades, and God told him in advance, by the way, they're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. You're going to preach, and they're going to ignore you. You're going to preach, and they're going to disobey. And God did not say to Isaiah, therefore, you should hire a consultant and then they will determine the effectiveness of your ministry and the success of your brand and probably tell you that you should find a different place to preach and change churches. No, he said that doesn't matter about their response. What matters is about your obedience. And so he does this faithfully decade after decade to a people who ignored him because of all of their comforts and all of their riches and all of their iniquity and all of their sin. And he watched as one by one they were led away into captivity. Paul is picking up on that very principle and applying it to the Roman believers, some of whom were Jews, when he references this verse. So, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. It's not the word um, logos, the word for word there. The word for word there is a word rhema. It's a word that means the individual constituent parts of something that is taught. He's saying like the words, the actual teachings, the actual subject matter. He says they're not hearing it. They're not obeying it. They're not believing it. Not, Not just the word of God in Christ or the word of God in general, but the actual specific words of the gospel, it's falling on deaf ears. They won't obey. Number two, they won't listen. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? A word that means understood. Have they not heard? Maybe that's the problem. Okay, Paul, you, you, you sent the gospel out there. Okay, I will give you that. You're telling me that they, they didn't obey it, but, but maybe they never heard it. Parents, think about this for a moment. You, you are less inclined to punish your child for disobedience if they did not hear you. Is that true? I hope so. If not, talk to me afterward and we'll have a little 
one-on-one discipleship. If your child doesn't hear the command, then you typically don't punish them for disobedience. They, they didn't hear. Now, you might have every intention of punishing them. You're ready to punish. You're, you're ready to go. Some of you kids are nodding. You're like, I've been there. I know what that's like. But then, in talking to them, you realize, okay, you never really heard the instruction. And isn't it amazing that your wrath dissipates when you realize they never heard you? Can you relate to that? You have in your mind that this was intentional disobedience, and there is nothing more infuriating than intentional disobedience. And so you're going to go and you're going to correct this child because you love the child. And Proverbs says that if you spare the rod, you hate the child. And you're going to show your love for the child. You're going to say, child, I love you so much. I'm going to love you like you've never been loved before. And I've got the rod to prove it. And another proverb that says, go ahead, beat him. He will not die. I mean, you're like, it's right there. But the moment you find out that there was ignorance, all that goes away. There's no anger. You say, okay, well, let me explain it. Let me say it again. Make sure you understand. The wrath of God would be justly moderated were they never to have heard. So the question is asked, have they heard? And Paul answers it, indeed they have For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words, again, that word rhema, the individual parts of truth, have gone to the end of the world. Paul picks up here Psalm 19, a beautiful psalm talking about general revelation. Psalm 19, verse 1 to 6, says this. You can listen as I read. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. If you ever looked up into the night sky, you know that it declares the glory and the majesty of the infinite creator. This has been brought home to us more easily with the development of apps you can Download so that you can use your phone to simply scan the night sky and realize that all this time you've been looking at Venus. Or all this time you've been noticing Jupiter. And all these constellations of stars. And then you begin to read more about it and you just scratch the surface of the incomprehensible vastness of the glory of creation. And Paul says, oh yes, they've heard Far from the fact that they've had the prophets, like he said, far from the fact that they have had the preachers and they have had the word of God and they have had the orderly worship given to them and they've had the law, beyond all of that, he goes all the way back. He's arguing from the lesser here. Obviously, they had all of the actual, specific, clear, special revelation, but he says they would be guilty even if they ignored just the general revelation. God has put forth his glory in the heavens. And anybody whom he has put a desire in their heart to find him will find him. No elect person will go unsaved simply on account 
of not having the gospel available to them. They will have the gospel preached to them. And everyone who doesn't will still be guilty not only because of their own sense of righteousness, which they could never live up to, as Paul says in Romans 2, but also the glory of God put on display in creation such that they are without excuse. They didn't obey. They didn't listen. Number three, they didn't submit. They didn't submit. Look at verses 19 through 21. This is the third one. But I ask, did Israel not understand? It's a word that means understand because of experience. Did Israel not experience this? And then, of course, the implication is, of course, they did. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous. Interesting statement, isn't it? I'm going to make you jealous, God says. The, The word here for jealous means to enrage from close by. So here's the picture. Um, people can make you angry for simple things like um, how they drive, for example. Um, you may on a weekly or even daily basis battle with, with anger expressed towards being surrounded by inferior drivers. If I try really hard, I, I can empathize perhaps with some of that. But that's not real anger, is it? That, that's just irritation. Anger from up close, he says, is the kind of anger that only somebody who is very close to you can conjure up. It's like anger that can only be expressed towards somebody who knows you really well. It's like family anger. Like parent to child, or between siblings, or between spouses. An anger that is so visceral that it's got a special quality to it. No one can make you as angry as, fill in the blank, that person who is closest to you, who knows how to push your buttons. And so he says, I'm going to make you that kind of jealous. Of who? Of those who are not a nation, literally a non-nation, a no-name people. I am going to make you jealous of a no-name people and with a foolish nation, a word that means they cannot synthesize truth, I'm going to make you jealous in a way that only I can because I am going to give my love and my affection to a bunch of nobodies who don't know anything and I am going to make you angry as a result. A word used only here in Ephesians 6, 4 for the kind of anger that a father can provoke in his child. Do not provoke your children to anger. Footnote, parents, you have the unique ability to enrage and anger and frustrate and provoke your children like nobody else. And yes, the Bible says to honor father and mother, and yes, it says to obey parents, but it also says with just as much authority, do not provoke your children to anger. There are families that are torn apart by disobedient children that have been provoked to it by disobedient parents. End of footnote. Verse 20. Then, he says, Isaiah is so bold, only spoken of here, Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who didn't ask for me. Isaiah 65.1. He's saying, look, this is amazing. God is not only going to provoke you to jealousy, he's not only going to make you angry, but he's going to do so with a no-name nation who doesn't know anything and has been given the glories of the gospel and they weren't even looking for it. 
He says, I'm going to lavish my love upon these nations of Gentiles, and they didn't even know to look for me. They didn't even have enough sense to know they needed somebody. And I'm going to make you jealous, and I'm going to make you angry, Jews, because I'm going to throw open the doors of the blessings of the covenant to a whole bunch of unworthy Gentiles, and I'm going to let them flood in here. And I'm going to receive them as if they were one of you. Now let me remind you that if anybody should be saying amen right now to that, it's all of you. Amen? All of us. The only reason that we are in this covenant is because the Jews made a way by rejecting that Messiah. And God in his providence, which he had ordained before the foundation of the world as part of redemptive history, then blew the doors wide open for Gentiles. And lest you think that's reason for us to become proud because we were smarter than them and we figured it out, he tells us over and over again in this epistle, it's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're more righteous. It's not because you're more special. It's only because of his grace. And he's going to tell us next chapter, don't let it go to your head because he can just as easily cut off the foreign branch that he grafted in as he did grafting it in. So don't get a big head and fool yourself and thinking you're so special now. But we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But all day long, he has been receiving those who would come to him. And verse 21, at the same time, but I say of Israel, or of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I've held out my hand. It's a phrase that only occurs here in the Bible. Held out his hand in, in merciful rescue. Take my hand. He doesn't say swim to me, climb to me, Make yourself righteous enough that I can meet you halfway. He says, I'm coming all the way to you. You cannot take his hand if you cannot reach it. The only distance between you and the hand of God is the faith to trust him that he means it when he says, I will say. And all day long, that hand is held out and all day long, the nation slaps it away in indifference. They're disobedient and they're contrary. They're, they're opposed to him. They contradict him. They deny him. They say, I don't want it. He's quoting Isaiah 51, uh, 65, 1 and 65.2 in this section. They don't submit to their own rescue. They don't obey. They don't listen. They don't submit. This is the same condition described by the author in the book of Hebrews. It's been a joy to study this book again recently as I was kindly invited to do one of the lessons for the women's Bible study that's studying the book of Hebrews. And I want to remind you of one of the warning passages here in Hebrews chapter 3. Once again, the writer to the Hebrews picks up and he quotes here from Psalm 95, 7 to 11. Just listen to this section as I read it. I'm in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. 
He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He says, take care, brothers, fellow Jews, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, there's a warning here. A warning against the deceitfulness of sin that tells you that you can always change your mind later. But it amounts to disobedience. Verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter my rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 6 of chapter 4, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Verse 11 of the same chapter, let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What's the disobedience? It's the disobedience that turns away from submitting to the righteousness of Christ offered to you through the gospel. How do you dismantle faith? How is this faith denied? What's the best recipe for apostasy? You simply mix in equal measures of disobedience to God, disbelief in his word, and disrespect for his authority. The hardness of the heart is what overtook the Jews. And it lingers in most of them to this very day. And it's spoken of there in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. It leaves a person paralyzed refusing to submit to the righteousness of Christ. And when you don't submit, when you don't let it break you, then your only alternative is to use that righteousness to your own advantage in a sinful way. And in my observation over the years, it usually happens in two ways. Number one, you turn it into something that you can achieve yourself. You take that gospel and you, you take it away from faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, and, and you turn it into some system of external conformity and rule following, and you usually create rules that are, that are just broad enough that you know you can consistently obey them, and then you do, and then you become proud. Or you turn it into something that you can enforce on other people, and that leads to hypocrisy like that of the Pharisees. They tell you to do all these things and they never lift a finger to do it themselves. This is when spiritual leaders become hypocritical abusers. This afternoon, if you drive by the coast and you look at people surfing, I want you to think about this. Based on my observation of the construction and repair of surfboards, these objects upon which these young people are, and old people for that matter, I might add, are riding, are boards made up of a central wooden spine surrounded by foam and fiberglass and then finished with a coat of epoxy resin. Right? Pretty close. They're waterproof. Glide across the top of the wave. They float. They don't become waterlogged 
any of that external shell is broken, it needs to be covered over and repaired. In much the same way, stubborn heart of disobedience is built like that. It rides the wave of religion without ever being filled with grace. At the core of a religious person, not a saved person, but a a religious person, they're terrorized by doubt and this endless striving is not from God, but is from the devil. The devil would love to keep religious people striving for salvation through a method other than simple faith in Christ. That is a demonic strategy that is working really well. Essentially, what you have in a situation like that is pride at the core, wrapped up in self-righteousness and then glazed over with a thick layer of false humility. It's grace-proof. It's gospel-proof. It's a hard shell of works that are done out of fear until God finally breaks through and redeems that person. And you know there's hope in that. There's hope that one day he will. And I say that because Paul was like that, wasn't he? I mean, Paul was not looking for God. He thought he'd found God. He was looking to round up and persecute and kill Christians who were idolaters. His heart was not pursuing the Lord. His heart was as far away from God as it could be, and yet God, by his sovereign grace, changed him. Luther was like that. He was going to be the best monk ever pursuing his religion, and then God breaks through with the truth. And you might be like that today as well. And so I would appeal to you the same way the author of the book of Hebrews appealed to the people to whom he was writing. And I would say that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but believe, receive salvation. Let me give you two implications here as we close. Two questions for you by way of application. Number one, do you picture Christ as an angry and menacing God? There's evidence that Luther did before his conversion. He would often go into the chapel at Wittenberg and uh, in the archway over the cemetery, there was a stone relief and Luther saw carved into it this image of Christ seated on a rainbow as the judge of the world, so angry that the veins stand out, menacing and swollen on his forehead. Imagine if your vision of Christ was that of an angry judge with the veins popping out of his forehead. Is that the vision you have of Christ? Well, if it is, then I need to tell you, first off, that he is an angry judge. But he's not an angry judge against his children. He is only angry in the way that a father is righteously angry at one who threatens his child. Most of you fathers in here are gentlemen. You're able to live with self-control. You don't fly into fits of rage 
and anger. But if somebody were to threaten your child, a whole other side of you would come out. There would be a furious, righteous wrath. And yet that wrath would be carefully measured out. And the fury of the wrath of God that he will inflict upon his enemies is carefully administered in such a way that his child is delivered and left unharmed. He is that judge, but only of the unbeliever. Of his child, he is the rescuer. And this is how it is with Christ, pure in his furious wrath, but as selective in whom he punishes as in whom he redeems. Have a right view of Christ today. Not only a wrathful judge, but an infinitely merciful Savior for all who respond to his call and take his hand. Secondly, do you think salvation is based on any kind of merit? The answer here is that salvation has to include some kind of merit. So again, there's definer distinctions to understand. Is there merit in salvation? The answer is yes, there is. Is there obedience in salvation? Yes, perfect obedience. The difference is it's not your merit and your obedience. The great relief is that it's the merit that is given to you, not the merit you merit. The Reformers recovered that doctrine of justification through Christ alone by teaching that His merits then are given to us in exchange for our sin. There's this great and unfair exchange where we give Him everything that we are in return for everything He is. One of the books that Luther wrote while he was held up in the castle in Wittenberg after the Diet of Worms was a a book where he tried to explain to the people in Germany what Christ did for us in salvation and the metaphor that he used was that of a king and a prostitute. And that the king in his love chooses this prostitute and marries her. And the point of the story is that all of her sin and all of her shame and all of her debts become his. And all of his honor and all of his glory and all of his wealth become hers. And though the illustration, of course, breaks down if pressed too far, the principle remains the same, that no matter what she has done in the past, the moment he marries her, she is queen by merit of the king. And likewise, no matter what you have done before, when you are born again, you are a child of God, equally granted the inheritance that comes from the Father as would come to his own son. John Calvin put it this way, thus we simply interpret justification as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as if we were righteous. And we say that this justification consists in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Beloved, it's not about whether you accept Christ, it's about whether Christ accepts you, and He accepts you based on His perfect righteousness offered to you through faith in Him, making you acceptable to God. The day of reckoning is coming for all of you. It is appointed 
for all men wants to die and then the judgment. Every one of you will be judged by God. The question is, upon which righteousness will you be judged? And I don't know when the day is, but I do know that the day of reckoning is one step closer today than it was yesterday. The question is, where do you stand? As the Reformation progressed, Luther quickly developed in his theology and took to writing hymns for the church, and he would often teach them new songs. I love to learn new songs. It's great to sing old songs that we know, but it's also really good to sing new songs, and I was blessed by the one I learned today. But one of the new songs that Luther taught the church was an Easter hymn, and let me give you just a few lines of this as we close today. He said this, Here the true Paschal Lamb we see, whom God so freely gave us. He died on the accursed tree, so strong his love to save us. See his blood doth mark our door. Faith points to it, death passes o'er, and Satan cannot harm us. Hallelujah. So let us keep the festival Whereunto the Lord invites us. Christ is himself the joy of all, the sun that warms and lights us. By his grace he doth impart eternal sunshine to the heart. The night of sin has ended, hallelujah. Then let us feast this Easter day on Christ, the bread of heaven. The word of grace hath purged away the old and evil leaven. Christ alone our souls will feed. He is our meat and drink indeed. Faith lives upon no other. Hallelujah. Can you say that today? Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for this precious time and for this truth and ask that it is clearer to us now than when we arrived and that it would be used for your own purposes and glory, strengthening your children and building them up to do the work of the ministry here at our church. We thank you for the truth delivered, the truth preserved, and the truth rescued century after century by faithful men and women willing to lay down their lives for that which has eternal value and is and forever shall be for our eternal good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.